Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Land and People. It's just me this time, Melissa Kimera. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. Clay couldn't join us, but that's okay. And I'll just go ahead and say the part that Clay normally says, which is that the views and opinions of myself and our guests are just strictly ours. They're not our employers or funders. And that way we can just sort of be really open and honest about our experiences. So I was able to interview two amazing wahine uh, for this episode that I'm calling Wahine Noho Mauna, uh, which means the woman that sits on the on the mountain. It's actually the Hawaiian name of a beautiful fern. And I wanted to bring together two dear friends of mine, um, continuing on the thread of talking about Maui and Maui Nui, really Maui and Molokai. And my guests today are two women in conservation, Carrie Fay, who is the Terrestrial Program Manager for the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii and Palmyra. Carrie and her team work from Makawao um, over in East Maui mostly and a bit on West Maui and also on Lanai. And Ane Bakudas, she is the program coordinator for the Plant Extinction Prevention Program on Molokai. And these two women are in my cohort. They have been working in stewardship for 20 plus years. Carrie Fay first started out uh, working up in Koke'e in Kauai. She's originally from Iowa and she went to school at University of Hawaii at Manoa. Similarly, Ane, um, also a UH alumni, is originally from Oahu, grew up on in Waianae. Um, they both, like many of our conservationists, have a just true fondness and love for plants, for the environment. We talked about some of the similarities and some of the challenges that we face as women in conservation and, you know, what that world has been like over the years, including being mothers, all of us, and also just doing this incredibly physically demanding work, you know, that's typically, you know, guys are doing it uh, for the most part, at least um, up until recently. So many different challenges in um, managing a piece of land, you know, and it goes beyond just the fences that you put up, but it's the partnerships and it's working with others and it's fire and rare plants. And, and it was really interesting, again, to focus on sort of the female perspective for women who've been doing this first sometimes. So with that, I'll introduce our very next guest, Carrie Fay, Nature Conservancy, Maui Terrestrial Program Manager, and Ane Bakudas with the Plant Extinction Prevention Program on Molokai. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Yeah. This came to me like around Thanksgiving when we were on Oahu. I was like, I want to interview women <laughs> my age, thereabouts, and just talk to others who are doing cool things in our field. So, yeah, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Well, I'm glad, Ane, you're here because I thought maybe you might never come on our show. <laughs> and then when you said, sure, because <laughs> we've been threatening, we're like, we're going to ask you at some point. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely like a, sure, not like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, you too, Carrie. I know you're like behind the scenes. Well, both of you are super behind the scenes in the work that you do, which is exactly why we wanted you to come. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like for me there in my field in particular, you know, in, in specializing in the in the rarest of plants throughout the world, you know, there's a there's a it's very male dominated. And it it continues to be that way. Not to say that my counterparts now have big egos or anything like that but i think in general there are a lot of a lot of big egos and ego driven men that are looking you know to find the next thing and that's their motivation and i think being a woman in this field like my motivation is not to get a plant named after me or to find a new species it's really to to malama and take care of of the plants in a way that you know, it's respectful to the Aina and to what most people call like Mother Earth, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that women bring a very different perspective to restoration, especially because yeah. we are mothers, we are that giving, we can birth in the way that the land can birth as well. And so I think it's just, it's more natural in a way for mm -hmm. women to be in this type of work in my career anyways being 
you know, in a managerial position, I'm, I'm able to hire whoever I want. And I have specifically chosen to hire women because we need more women in the field. And I feel like because of our just mothering nature, we need that perspective, that, that aloha, that love going into the Aina instead of taking away from it all the time. We talked a little bit about that with Sheila Conan, actually a lot, you know, about what she went through in her era and what continues, you know, how we continue to try to bring that ethic forward in a very, as you say, male-dominated field still. I'm so glad we're jumping right into this because this is exactly why I wanted the two of you I just want to paint the picture for our listeners. I think most of all of you know this because you're many of you are conservationist outdoor people, but the work of conservation is extremely physical. And for those who don't know, the Hawaiian terrain is extraordinarily hard, especially in the remote areas. You know, we're talking about like jungle gym type of topography where you can easily um, hurt yourself. You get just like go off of a cliff, break bones, twist ankles. And then on top of that, we're talking about in some cases, you know, very hardcore work of building fences, surveying for some of these really rare species. And then of course, you know, removing these non-native ungulates, um, which are a valuable food resource. That's, That's a whole other subject. But just getting into all of that really hardcore physical work, as you say, on a, you know, bringing this ethic um, that is so different from, I think, in some ways than our male counterparts carry. With all of that, <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, what Anne said and how do you relate or not relate to what she's talking about? So I agree. I also think that women can bring a bit more of a finer touch or more attention to detail than some male counterparts. But in the history that I've had in conservation, I have found that I haven't had much trouble. I've managed to keep up with the men. I totally admit it when I can't lift a 250-pound 50 pound roll of hog wire. I'm just like, somebody else has to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't really had much of a problem. There's probably been a handful of times when I've had to just call somebody out and say, that's not cool. You mean like just sexist behavior or sexist behavior? And then just drawing the line, drawing the line in the field and saying, I won't tolerate that. I'm going to call the hotline. It was kind of a running joke that we had a hotline, but it really kind of wasn't because, mm-hmm. you know, I could say I'm calling the hotline and then people would just shut up. <laughs> this came up really quite frankly with Sheila's interview. I was shocked, but not shocked at the same time with, you know, let's just say it, you know, the Me Too sexual harassment, all of that ha- is just sort of endemic to any male dominated field, you know, and we don't want our listeners out there to take this personally or feel like we're just throwing all men under the bus. This is not all men, obviously. But I mean, let's just be real that that exists for sure. And as just the physical part of, you know, no, we're not going to be able to <laughs> lift a 250 pound roll. But to your point on a, you know, our brains our sort of mothering instinct, the lighter touch, maybe helping to equalize things. I feel like in terms of just uh, the not the hyper competitiveness, speaking for myself, I think those are all really valuable. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times, you know, in the whatever, how many, 25 years or more that I've been in, in conservation, you see a lot of times decisions are made based on personal needs or wants by men. And, and I, I think like a lot of times I find myself having to remind people and remind myself even that it's not about us. It's about the plants. It's about the ecosystem. And, mm-hmm. you know, the hardest part about doing conservation is working with other people, not with working not with working with the animals or the yeah. species, it's <laughs> with the people. And I think that sometimes, you know, having a woman in the room is very helpful to mm-hmm. kind of mediate and just diffuse any any hypertension in a meeting or in a discussion about what to do about conservation. But speaking back to the point of sexual harassment, I think Sheila probably had it the worst out of all of us because of a different generation, but it doesn't mean that we haven't had it either. You know, like I've been- oh, in- yeah. Been I've been in very remote, isolated situations with individual men or groups of men where I've been totally harassed and felt threatened. And luckily, you know, nothing has ever happened, but I reported it to the authorities because it's it's no joke. And you're isolated, helicopter ride or two day walk from anywhere with a bunch of dudes. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> we, gotta, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. You just gotta, you gotta either like swallow the verbal um, discussions about sex and, and stuff you maybe don't want to hear, or you got to put your foot down. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can think of one, I can think of one person like for decades, you know, and it was just a known person. Every new female that would come in, it was fair game, right? It just went on and on. You know, I experienced it early on in my career. I sort of like swatted it away. I felt I was in a position to do that. Nonetheless, it was constant. It was almost like you'd see the situation unfolding. You're, it just wears on you, right? I mean, it's just like tiring. You're like, as you say, the job is hard enough, but here we are. We're here. <laughs> it's still doing it. It's, it's a testament to the work you guys have done, but I do want to backtrack a little bit. Both of you, just like your background, where you come from and who or how you got connected to the land growing up, who influenced you, and then how what directed you towards the current work that you do? I grew up in Iowa and the winters were brutal. And I always knew I couldn't spend the rest of my life dealing with cold winters. And so mm-hmm. I left Iowa and I had my 21st birthday on Kauai. It was 1993. I think it was Iniki was September. It could have been 1994. I came like a year after. And so during the most influential years, I was there and I spent all of my my time outside. I had multiple people who influenced me, multiple experiences. And that's really what shaped my love of conservation. You grew up in like a farming, I mean, Iowa, right? This is like close to the land. Farming is everywhere. I mean, you came initially, you know, working for one of the big seed companies, right? So did you have that like experience of being outdoors and loving the outdoors and wanting to do outdoor work? I did. I worked in for the seed corn company. And when I first graduated from high school, I kind of struggled with what what do I want to do? And I thought it was horticulture. And I sort of got into plant there. And I always worked outside in the summer times since I was 14, of course, but just the shaping of my love of conservation, it just didn't come until later. I remember you were out in like Keikaha, right? Out in west side of Kauai and yep I got really enamored with the evolution and the plants and so there was a time when I knew every single native plant and what family they belong to and now I have opositis where (laughs) I know a programmatic budget and I don't know all the plants anymore oh my gosh (laughs) yeah so yeah that's kind of where I started and I started you know hiking deep in the mountains of Hawaii and I spent my summers for about 10 years on the Nepali coast and I roamed that whole area and my friend my partner now he we were good friends back then and he had a 14 foot living spin a small boat and he would pull it out to fully holly and we would launch from the beach we'd get in the boat and we'd disappear all weekend and come back on Sunday afternoon and go to work on Monday and that was summertime. Yeah. Spent a lot of time doing that. It was unreal. That is really what shaped it for me. And Anne, I know a little bit just from your family that you were out in Waianae, yeah, growing up. Yeah. So I grew up in Waianae and my family is more mostly like an ocean surfing family. But I, I did find out after I graduated with a degree in botany that my dad had actually gone to college for two years in forestry. <laughs> Oh. I kept wondering where, where the botany came from, where the interest in botany came from. And I guess it is genetic. But no, I started, um, I'm a hula dancer. And I think the love for plants and the connection to plants started really early, early on in, in lay making and, and in all of the that, you know, I, I learned or learning. And my kumu hula in particular, she would take us out to different places in what and I in the forest in particular and and I was maybe like five six seven eight years old and going out into the forest to collect like palapalai and lehua and those things in the back of Waianae but then like I kind of throughout high school I was more of an artist um, my both of my parents are artists I was going to go to fancy art school in New York City and my mom was like are you sure about that it's cold there and you hate the cold <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, um, maybe I'll go to UH. She's like, yeah, UH is your backup plan. And my first semester at UH, I just, I was taking all kinds of classes. I had like two art classes and then a Hawaiian studies class and an ethnobotany class and a Hawaiian language class. And my 
art teacher, the first day of class, he told us, oh, you, you will not create anything that hasn't been created already. And I said, oh, this guy is a loser. And <laughs> he can't be my teacher. He's not going to teach me anything. So I kind of like dove right into my ethnobotany and Hawaiian studies courses. And luckily, my teacher was Dr. Isabella Abbott. I'm convinced that she's related to my papa because they have the same last name. But she said they were never related, but they're both from Hana. So I'm like, no, they're related. <laughs> well, I had this like, special connection with her. And she really showed me, you know, that you can study plants. And at the same time, I had this thought in my brain that, you know, I don't want to be in an office. I don't want to be strapped to a desk. I want to be outside and, and plants live outside. So I have to be outside if I'm going to study plants. And Dr. Abbott kind of guided me into that, that world of botany. Granted, she specialized in limu and I worked for her for many years. Oh, But it was really conservation and working outside with different plants that spoke to me and drew me back to all the things I had known and learned like in hula mm -hmm. and saying, I didn't know that, that a career, you know, in this field was possible. Yeah. And so when I figured out that I could hike all day for a living and, and be adventurous and look around and survey for things, I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome. That's amazing. Of course, it's just now I'm being reminded that we're all three UH alums. <laughs> and I feel like we had some of the same professors at the time in the 90s. Yeah. I had Isabella Abbott too. I had her for just one class when Ethnobotany, it was, it was amazing. I don't know if either of you had um, Allison Kay or Charlie Lamoureux at the, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, can we just give a shout out to One Natural History? <laughs> Bob Kenzie. <laughs> yes. I mean, that generation, Sheila Conant, Ken Kaneshiro, mm -hmm. even Sheila, I mean, Sheila Conant, and then um, uh, Mark Merlin, Jerry Carr was a big, yeah. Did you guys take his class? I did not brave. I was not brave enough. <laughs> I was his TA. You were his TA. Were yeah. you? Okay. <laughs> that was the botany class, right? He taught like regular morphology, and then he started the Hawaiian botany course, which was just Hawaiian plants and ferns and grasses. Yeah. So I was his TA for that class for a couple years and his other class too, taxonomy and morphology. <laughs> it was brutal. Taxonomy <laughs> class. Yeah. It's super brutal. Chuck was like, if you like taxonomy, then you're going to ace it. Yeah. <laughs> What about you, Carrie? What class did you take of his? The plants. Oh, Hawaiian plants. Okay. Yeah. yeah I never took any. Yeah. I think Trey Menard was an like, interesting story about um, Charlie Lamoureux. I, when I decided I was going to go back to school and I wanted to go to UH, um, I was, mm -hmm. I was spending quite a bit of time with Keith Robinson in the mountains of Kauai. He decided he was going to go over there with me and introduce me to Charlie Lamoureux. And I remember my sister was visiting at the time and we all got on the airplane and Keith wore his hard hat, his green hard hat on the plane throughout the whole flight and my sister was like why is he wearing hard hat <laughs> <laughs> it's like i don't know he's just you know one of those characters that that's what he does <laughs> um but he introduced me to charlie lamro and then i ended up um getting a job at lion arboretum um unfortunately it was in the gift store <laughs> whatever i was it was good also one of my major mentors was um rob robichaud and he wasn't at UH, but he was at University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. But he, um, you know, at a younger age, he had studied the Silver Sword Alliance. And um, mm -hmm. when I was working on the Big Island at Volcanoes National Park, Park, I got had the opportunity to work with him for about almost 10 years. Wow. In restoring silver swords on Mauna Loa, the Ka'u Silver Sword, as well as working on Mauna Kea with the Mauna Kea Silver Sword. He's just... He's an amazing scientist. He's so, so, so very bright. Um, but he's also the most sincere and kindest mm -hmm. human that I've maybe ever met. Um, mm -hmm. And his, just his ano, his way of being is so similar to, to what, anyways, how I think of my, my papa and, or, you know, how our ancestors walked upon the land in Hawaii. And he just has that kindness about him. 
and anything that he touches or does with restoration wise, especially of these super rare species is so very thoughtful and so very successful. And I think because, you know, so much of the success of restoration is, is the feeling, the, the, the touch and what you put into it mm-hmm. for me personally is giving your aloha to these plants and to the, to the, the land in which you're putting them back into. And, um, he really showed me that in a very like auspicious way, uh, just, just his way of being, he never said, oh, this is what you have to do. You know, just, yeah, yeah. He demonstrated. Yeah. And, and it was just, when I think about someone who does like Aloha Aina or Malama Aina, I think of him and he's not a male Hawaii. Um, he's not a, Hawaii, but he, he has that. So some similar characteristics where I think back of our kupuna who were, you know, scientists, Mm-hmm. similar to how he was I think that of them as being very similar so he was definitely a mentor of mine and it still continues to be an inspiration because he's in his 70s and he's still still going for it <laughs> still yeah still working not only with silversmiths now but with other Hawaiian plants in particular like Clermontia, Peliana, um, mm-hmm. Island and then, of course, can't fail to mention Mr. Steve Perlman. I was going to say. <laughs> who, um, yeah. Is just a gem of a human as well and mm-hmm. um, has been such a force in rare plant conservation. Yeah. In Hawaii. So, I great thanks to him as well. Oh, yeah. So what about you, Carrie? Do you have someone that you think of, you know, who changed the way you look at places that you go to? Katie Castle was a huge one for me. I worked with mm. her and, you know, yeah. she's a resource conservation program. And I learned a lot from her as far as just being tenacious and not giving up. And she's just a really, really tough woman who physically was doing things like the work of men. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, during the that same time, there was Steve Perlman and Ken Wood and Keith Robinson was was really wonderful to me too because mm-hmm. he would take me to places that I wouldn't normally go. I followed him into the mountains and thinking back on those times, I did some things that like I would not tell my mother about. Or your field crew. You know, <laughs> they were so dangerous. <laughs> so dangerous. <laughs> Can we just take a pause and recognize those days? Yeah. Those are gone. <laughs> Yeah, I think that deserves a little bit of unpacking because when we were doing it, ladies, before OAS is the gold standard by which we follow and protect our lives and those who work for us and so forth. It was a different world, right? You know, getting in and out of helicopters and climbing in really steep areas with no ropes. Pohakua is a hanging valley on the Nepali coast. And I got there one time and there was a big stone where we were supposed to land like which is the flat stone of this waterfall and then there was like 200 foot falls and so the helicopter couldn't land <laughs> so we kind of hover landed over you know half the skid was over the falls and half was over the stone but we still had to like gently step out of the helicopter and unload the back of the helicopter <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah it was wild I won't do it anymore. and they probably still do things like that uh. <laughs> yeah, um, I probably shouldn't say. No, <laughs> I, I still work for this for for Pat, but I want to keep my job. No, <laughs> well, I I will say that you know before there was no fear, and I think, and I still don't have fear in going into the forest, but but there is concern. Like ever since becoming a mom. Mm-hmm. I want to come home at night. Yeah. I want to be stuck in the forest. I want to make sure I'm home for my kids. And if that means I'm not going to repel off of that 2000 foot cliff, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. It's not worth it. You know, and it's not worth it. And I think before having children, I wouldn't have cared. I would have just done it regardless of OAS or any other safety procedures out there because I was going in thought of like, I need to save these plants. I need to yeah. to do this for, for them, for the greater good. And now I don't necessarily feel that way. <laughs> 
where I can yeah. do everything in my capacity to make sure that these species are here for the next generation. But I'm going to come home at night to my kids. Oh, absolutely. I love that you're bringing it to that, Ane. We're all moms um, in this room and we've all had these pretty intense physical jobs and it sometimes can be extremely risky if we're not taking precautions, which we may have ignored in our younger days. It is different now, right? I mean, and the schedule is different um, too, because we want to be home for um, raising, helping to raise our kids. It changes, right? It's like the balance, right? Like nobody ever asks and this is, I'm not going to ask this of you because I do think it's unfair. Nobody ever asks guys how they manage their work-life balance. <laughs> but somehow it always comes up. And I, I say that because um, I do think that as moms, we do make a calculation about how we're going to manage it all, right? I mean, even being pregnant and being in the forest and doing our job, you know, like I remember with my first child, I was pregnant and I was talking with another colleague, Kapua Cavello, and and she was like, "Okay, honey, don't don't hike past eight months, because you never know." And I was like, "Are you kidding me? I'm gonna keep going till I give birth." And and it was really good advice. And I think that as being women in in this conservation field, in very physical jobs, it's important to share that. Mm-hmm with other women who are in the same positions, you know, and being like, yeah, it's really better <laughs> the last <laughs> month of your pregnancy used to find lots of office work to do. <laughs> and it's nothing like being like, we're not capable. It's just smarter. <laughs> it's just, yeah, you never know something could happen and <laughs> medical professionals are nearby, whatever. Because Ane brought up Kapua, I always admired Kapua and Joby because I don't know how old, um, I think it was, their son is older, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember them being in Kokei and he was just a baby and they were like, we're going to go for a hike. And it was the whole Avavapuhi Nulolo trail loop. Yeah. <laughs> like nine miles. Oh my gosh. They're a different species, though. So let's just <laughs> acknowledge. <laughs> Carrie, you're pretty hardcore. You and I went hunting, deer hunting on Haleakala Ranch with Jack. He's passed on, but I think he was in his 80s. And he took us out, out there and, and you and I were just stalking deer and you shot it. And we went to go clean it. And Carrie was pregnant. <laughs> You do. You weren't expecting to get sick at that moment as I was trying to take the guts out and all, but it just happened. And it was like, oh, OK, let's just be honest. Killing and gutting an animal when you're pregnant is just a next level, I think. <laughs> I mean, we had an opportunity to go, so... The opportunity. Um, you've done a lot of hunting. Actually, I do want to talk about that a little bit. I've done some, not nearly as much as you. And you enjoy it, right? You go with your Kane and, and friends and stuff. And I'd love to hear about your perspective on, on hunting in Hawaii and how that relates to the work that you do. I look at it as just doing my job. The invasives, but I do enjoy... I would venture to say that my current partner... Him and his family could very easily be subsistent um, in fishing and thing that they do. I like being out there. And I think what I really love about it is tuning in because you're listening, you're smelling, you're looking, and you're just really just being, being hyper aware. And then at that time, you're not paying attention to any other things. You're not thinking about other things. You know, you're looking for the animal. It's that flow state, right? I mean, it's hard to describe because you are cannot be in the future or the past. You are in the moment and you are just so completely focused on what's around you and in, in the search for the animal, right? I'm curious about your perspective as, as a woman coming into this, you know, which is like, let's be honest, it's a brutal thing at the end of the day, um, killing an animal, taking a life or whatever. And then what comes after that of cleaning the animal? I don't know. I mean, what's your ethic about that? And, and how do you feel about that just generally? Because most women I know are, will never do that, to be perfectly honest. They'll never, they'll never do that. I mean, I'm talking about people who are not in conservation, right? I feel like if you can go to the grocery store and um, buy meat, then you should be able to harvest your own meat and deal with it. You know, I think that that's really like the full circle that actually, I don't know, it's like consume, if you're going to consume it, you're going to go buy it, then you should be able to, to harvest it. That's always been kind of my perspective on it. And, you know, 
it's like, I don't really take taking a life lightly. I have tried to tell my son that if he's going to kill something, then he needs to be able to eat it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. most of the time. <laughs> right. right. If, if you're like going after predators who are killing native birds, then yeah. that's sort of another. That's different. Yeah. But it's for purpose, right? And it's. I mean, I venture to say it's not as testosterone driven thing necessarily, maybe not all the time. Ane, I would love to hear your thoughts about all of this that we're talking about, too. You are also homesteader and married to one, too. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not a hunter per se, but, you know, like I have definitely had my share of killing invasive animals, most often, you know, feral cats, um, rats and mongoose. And I don't have a problem killing them. Because, because they're <laughs> they're killing our native species, whether it's you know turtle, turtle eggs, or birds, or eating seeds from plants, um, and changing our environment, or eating snail, our Hawaiian tree snails. I actually have never like killed a deer or a pig, but I raised pigs and I watch them get killed all the time. Um, and then I have, you know, helped clean animals in the forest that we've killed in snares or, or someone else has shot. And then I live on Molokai. So, you know, my, my Kane and my son, they're all hunters, they're deer hunters. Um, I'm very much like Carrie was saying, like we live a very subsistence lifestyle where, you know, we're eating deer at least once a week and fish and pay and everything else the rest of the time. So I'm I'm all for eating the invasives. <laughs> and the more deer we can eat, the better. And the more ways that we can utilize that animal um, in particular. When we kill a deer, it's like we're using all of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, our dogs, mm-hmm. our dogs get the bones. If my son's not harvesting for his little doggy treat business, um, and then actually the rest of the carcass goes to our pigs, so it's like that whole animal is being used. I really like that aspect of what our family does, and I feel that it's such a resource that we underutilize, and, and we should be able to utilize it more. Yeah, but I do feel strongly that we have a major deer problem on this island, especially yeah. the you know, deer have been here since the. 1800s and we need bigger solutions than what we've been dealing with so far. Well, you're both, both of you are dealing with that directly in your work. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear from each of you, you know, what you think some of the big picture solutions might be. I don't even know what the numbers are on Molokai and Maui. Uh, it's such a heated issue. It's really hard. So I think it was like three years ago, the Maui County started realizing there was a problem and, and gave out um, or had these uh, grants that they put out to the community to apply for to manage deer or to even do a deer count. So we still don't have a solid deer count on Molokai. From my perspective of all the places that I've seen them move into within the last 15 years, my assumption is that there's probably 100,000 deer on Molokai. We have 7,000 people on Molokai. So there's no way we can eat all of that deer. And they're in places where they have never been in the past. You know, they're up in the bogs, they're forests, they're on the North Shore, all on the cliffs, down on the peninsulas. They are everywhere. And they are everything. There is not probably a single native plant that hasn't been browsed by a deer in its lifetime. Um, Wow. And the problem is getting worse and worse where we see more and more runoff, especially on the west side of Molokai. So all of Mauna Loa Mountain is basically looking like Koholawe before any restoration efforts, where it's just barren ground and hard pan on all the topsoil is now. Oh my God. Anyways, when the county presented these grants, I was on a couple of the working groups to come up with a plan. And basically I said to hunters and to non-hunters and to the community members, I said, look, we can aerial shoot now, or you can come back to the realization that you need to aerial shoot in five years. But in five years, we will have lost that much topsoil. That plants. And we'll have put up, we'll have spent thousands and thousands of dollars putting up fences. So I think Mm -hmm. we're at year three, (laughs) maybe four in that process. And the hunters clubs are still trying to manage deer. People put up fences. I've put up my own fences around my homestead. Yeah. And, you know, the solution is to aerial shoot 
just to get the yeah not to eliminate the deer i'm not saying that we should eliminate the deer but we need to get them out of the forested areas and we need to bring the numbers down drastically to more manageable levels because it's out of no. Even if we wanted to and nobody, let's just pretend nobody was there on Molokai and it was like uninhabited and it was like, okay, let's get rid of all the, you couldn't, you couldn't. I mean, just because they are so evasive, they evolved to, you know, get away from Bengal tigers. Even if you wanted to aerial shoot them all, it's not even possible. I mean, maybe someone will prove me wrong, but I don't think it's, it's even possible. It's like what you said, just reducing the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's bad, you know, and now. Yeah dealing with, okay, we need to put up these fences and they're crossing these cultural sites and we don't want to put sand dunes or on EV, but we need fences. Otherwise, we're not going to have native plants anymore. We're just going to have kiave and halikol and buffalo grass. Right. Carrie, what about you over in Waikamoe? You've been, well... West Maui too now, of course. So we put a taller fences. We have some problems with them getting into Waikamoe Preserve. We've got probably three right now in the preserve, but it seems like they're trying to get out. They're trying to go back towards the pasture lands. Mm-hmm. So we are actively hunting them, but it's hard. It's like a needle in a haystack because it's almost a 10,000 acre area and there's like three deer. Um, although we did it before. We got him out before. So there is aerial shooting going on on Maui in some places. And, you know, some of the challenges here are that they're all on private land and getting access to hunt on the private land is hard. Yeah, I bet. So we take advantage of control permits whenever it's offered. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've gotten most of our animals. And then we have the preserve on Lanai too. Yeah, of course. That's also a problem. And in talking to them, you know, we had that bad drought about, I don't know, was that a year ago? That it killed a lot of deer. And then, so during that time, they didn't, they weren't having babies. And so it sounds like the count on Lanai has dropped drastically. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we applied for the state hunt this year. And there's only, you can only get tags for like two animals. So that's way different than it used to be. How do you mean? How so? You know, you could get as many tags as you could before. The year we went a couple years ago, we got, it was MUFON combined with Axis deer. And you buy so many tags and they give you like a couple more free tags just to like bring the numbers down. Bring the numbers down. But now they're concerned because the numbers have dropped or they perceive they've dropped. And yeah, isn't that the hardest thing, ladies, that is getting just even an understanding of what the numbers are? I mean, as you said, um, on a you, you can do population estimates. I don't know. Are there any numbers to be known for Maui? Yeah, they did a survey kind of in the past couple of years. The number they came up with was 60,000. But I think and everybody else I talked to say, oh, you could probably add 20,000 to that. Oh, interesting. Every year you could add 20,000 to that. Uh, well, I mean, not to dwell too much on the problems. I do want to end eventually on a, on on maybe the restoration work both of you have done and, and specifically with you on Aeon Plants and, and other things. I do want to talk about fires in the context of like Lahaina, the human disaster, right? But those of us who've been thinking about fire for a long time know it's so much bigger and it goes up the mountain and the, the after effects. I'd love to hear just from both of you, Carrie, maybe to start with you and Kula, the fires and, and maybe before that. How's this affected you personally and professionally? Every single person on Maui has been affected. And that night of August 8th, we nearly lost. I mean, it started, the first fire started in Olinda. Debatable, but one of, there was a fire in Olinda mm-hmm. and we nearly lost the last 40 Akikiki because the fire started right across from the Maui Bird Conservation Center. And, you know, now they're estimating there's five left in the wild. So in one fell swoop, we could have basically lost all of those birds. An entire species. And so, you know, conservation and work-wise, that was just a huge eye-opener and just kind of exemplified how fragile everything is. And one event like that could just take out a whole species. Personal level, thinking about West Maui and work after the fires, you know, we were indirectly affected. You step up and you ask people, how can we help? And so supported partners who are from West Maui, I sent 
with a crew over there. And while their crew was busy just dealing because they had crew members who lost homes and nearly lost their lives. So they were fully immersed in the community response to the fires. And so I said, can we help by caretaking the Malka section of, you know, your area and they said yes and so we sent a crew over there to help Kukukui watershed okay and then you just find any other way of helping that you possibly can i'm fostering slash adopting a dog yeah you know and and i mean it seems but this family is in a hotel and it's just like taking one little thing off of their shoulders while they just deal with life well carrie and you also housed unsheltered people too you put your house, your little place out on whatever registry and you had a couple of people come and stay with you for a night or two. Yeah. In the very, very beginning. Yeah. They were here for a week. It was roommates. And I said, oh, I only have a full size bed and it's like half bath. And mm-hmm. the gal on the phone, she said, well, they've been sleeping in his car. So I said, OK, send them over. They can stay as long as they need to. Yeah. You know, just like talking to them and the amount of stuff they had to deal with as a result of the fires, like paperwork and insurance claims. And, you know, the whole thing is just was just daunting with with no access to computers with, you know, lucky they got out of there. How do you feel like Kula? I mean, you are right there in Makawal. Do you get a sense what's going on in Kula? Do you know anybody up there? Or I mean, it's only three months after, so it just feels like it's very, very much at the beginning. Well, you and I both know Francis Cortisol. He's got, he had smoke inhalation and so kind of suffering because of that. Oh, I didn't know that. And then, you know, we both know other people who who are up there who nearly lost their homes and mm-hmm. you know National park staff lost his home and mm-hmm. it wasn't as large scale as Lahaina obviously but nevertheless still devastating to the people that lost yeah just driving through there when clay and i were over it, it was shocking honestly i couldn't even get over the scale of it um yeah, I mean, it brings it all sort of into a new level of awareness, I think, as we all know, you know, about things we've all been worried about for a long time. I mean, Ane, I was just looking at the numbers, <sighs> writing up the um, the stats from Molokai on our, our Pacific Fire Exchange page and 1989 to 1999. I can't remember what the acreage was that burned. It was like 5% of the island. I just, it was like shocking. I, I mean, I knew there, Eddie talked about the fires that he's been in, you know, helped with the task force and stuff, but it was like, wow, this is, this is major. How has this latest thing or from before, how has that affected you guys personally or your work that you do and your concern around that? Our just love and aloha go out to, to all the people in Lahaina and also in Kula during those fires and you know Molokai is a community we really rallied to support as best that we could um in the relief efforts and we continue to do that too so we're just thankful that we can provide some kind of help there from a conservation standpoint for those fires in particular same thing you know the the bird um sanctuary up up on Olinda is right next to the rare plant um greenhouses there they also house like Kanaloa kohoolavensis, which is oh. one of our rarest plant species. And there are 11 plants there mm-hmm. that not only could have burned, but the high winds in that fire collapsed the greenhouses and smashed a lot of the plants. And we did lose two of the 11 plants in that um, storm event, never mind the threat of fire. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the guys that, that are on Maui, ran up there and fought fire in the middle of it all knowing those plants and the birds and the snails that are yeah but you know fire on west maui has been so very apparent like we just lost i think it was last new year's a bunch of snail habitat Mm -hmm. above lahaina from a conservation perspective, it's so difficult to watch that happen. And, and you know, uh, Maui Fire Department does their best. Wildlife and wildlands is not a priority. Mm-hmm. And uh, firefighting property is. And I, I'm hopeful that that perspective will change, especially on Molokai, <laughs> because we don't have a helicopter here. And we 
rely on Maui to come over and fight our fires for us. So in 2008, we had a huge fire that was, or 2009, because 2009 was our last big fire and it burned all behind Konakukai town. And it started from somebody lighting fireworks and it burned east towards Covella. And then the wind switched and it burned west back towards Kolomula and then west, east again, back towards Covella. And then it threatened, um, I live in Kolomula on the homestead and mm-hmm. it threatened our place. And we had crews from Maui come over to fight fire and they didn't know where they were going or what they were doing or the resources that, that were available to them. So in the back of Kalamuloha's homestead, there's actual fire hydrants. So the brothers who you know grew up here got out their fire hoses because we all have fire hoses <laughs> and went to show the fire department where the fire hydrants were to start putting out fires in the middle of the night so they wouldn't burn property. And because we don't have a helicopter stationed here, we couldn't put out the fire fast enough with just one helicopter. And then after and the fire kind of subsided from the residential areas, the fire burned in the forest for three months. After. Oh my goodness. And, um, you know, so then it became my job as a conservationist or our job, you know, with the state and nature conservancy guys to go up there and fight that fire for, for oh. three months <laughs> without the help of anybody else. And I really hope that the perspective changes and it's not just mm-hmm. about life and property. It's about these species, you know, I call them the kupuna that rely on us for our safety because we're creating these fires. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, this is something we actually can do something about. You know, it, we have agency here. There's there's many things that are in some ways out of our control, but this isn't one of them. Yeah. So then after the Lahaina fire, a lot of people in Moloka'i were just on edge. Um, for example, yeah. my father-in-law lives in Holehua on the homestead and his property is is vegetated he's a farmer he's got it you know all irrigated but everything around him is a sea of buffalo grass and holiko and the wind blows you know northeast of him and down into his property and it's like he went and cut down all of his norfolk pine trees because he was worried that if fire came from from the east of him it would just wipe out his whole property yeah 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 because here we don't have any of the resources that we do like Maui does or Oahu does um so we're even more vulnerable yeah I mean it's it's so yeah it's intense I mean you guys have both lived it quite literally well switching to I'd love to hear about you know the restoration work that both of you have done on a Chuck reminded me that you were a student with him. Yes, we were <laughs> master's, master's student in botany. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And here you are working with the rarest plants. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about PEP, um, what it stands for, what the goals are, and the scope of the work that you're doing. I'd love to hear about it. And then Carrie, I'd love to hear about, you know, some of sort of like the preventative work and the restoration work, um, you know, that you're doing over at TNC. PEP is the, stands for the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. It was born in 2003 out of another kind of volunteer group called the HRPRG Hawaii Rare Plant Restoration Group. And it was born because even though it's mandated by the state to to manage an endangered to manage endangered plant species, no one was specifically doing it. So the HRPRG group decided they would try to round up funding to create this program to manage the rarest of Hawaiian plants so that they would not go extinct. And it originally started as the Hawaii Genetic Safety Net. And then after two years, it kind of switched into being called the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, which was more specific about what we were actually doing. It was really a test program. It started in 2003 and just had kind of temporary funding for a few months and then went to just a part-time position. And then I was hired in 2005 as the first full-time position with them. Uh, I was on Oahu at the time. So I was the Oahu PEP program. And we basically focus on the rarest of Hawaiian plants. So any species that has less than 50 individuals left in the wild. And um, those 50 
or those species don't necessarily have to be listed as endangered by the federal government. They just have to be known to be rare or in that limited state throughout the conservation community. So then in 2008, I moved to Molokai and, and started to manage the program here or created the program here because it was okay. under Maui Nui where Hank Oppenheimer was managing four islands. So Ko'olawe, Maui, Molokai and Lanai with over like 150 species. So by yeah. me coming on to um, to work on Molokai, the, the program here manages 32 species which means 32 plants, plant species that might have between five and 10 populations all over the island. And we go and collect from them, or it's down to just one individual plant left in the wild and trying your best to make collections from that, growing those seeds out. On Molokai, we don't have a facility to grow to grow anything, a nursery or greenhouse. So we mm-hmm. send the seeds to Oahu, to Lion Arboretum, or to okay. Maui, to the Olinda Rare Plant Facility. You can have them grown and then try to get them back to Molokai to outplant them. <laughs> There's a lot of different challenges. There's a lot at logistics and other ways. Do you have help? So I have a team of two other women that work with me. Cool. Oh, actually a third now. So through there's three of us, well, four of us in the in the forest, but we're all at different stages of full or part-time um, status. But one of our like greatest success stories is uh, a plant species called Sanya prosera. And Sanya prosera was down to just one single individual on a cliff, you know, in, in those little drainage. And um, we were able, after many trials and tribulations, we finally got um, viable seed off of this last individual. And a lot of the problems with collecting seeds is that the flowers and fruit were parasitized by a native moth, oh. a native insect. Interesting. And, and so we had to, we're working with different entomologists and trying to figure out what we should do and how we should protect these flowers as they developed into fruit from, mm-hmm. from, from this insect that ended up the best solution was to actually uh, use a systemic insecticide to prevent this insect from eating the, the flowers and the fruit that get viable seed so it's kind of like that challenge or payoff is like you are you going to potentially harm or not say kill potentially harm a native insect or lose a, a entire species of plant yeah. and so the entomologists were the guys that said nope don't worry about the insect <laughs> save the plant um, <laughs> so we, we did that we did that for two years and we got over 1500 seedlings in the ground Wow. Those those seedlings have now grown up and are producing fruits and flowers and they're still getting parasitized by this native moth, but but there are more of them out there. There are more flowering plants out there. So we're able to get viable seed without having to do the insecticide insecticide treatments and of course like the success of this project has really been been successful because of all of the partnerships um pep does not mm-hmm. have a land base so we're yeah. able to work on everyone's land as long as they agree so private landowners mm-hmm. the state the feds and most often we're more welcome onto the land to to malama these rare and endangered plants sometimes we're not but most times mm-hmm. we are because the plants you know the plants have no boundaries they <laughs> Where they live, they don't care about tax back fees. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> At the same time that we were collecting these seeds, the Nature Conservancy was putting up fences. So then we had a ton of habitat to put these plants back into. You know, so it's all worked intertwined in the partnerships in conservation and, and, and the work that we do. That's awesome. Thinking about back to what Eddie was talking about before there were any fences and before anyone really understood, um, or not that they didn't understand necessarily, but just the ethic of the whole Ahua, right? Top of the mountains and all the way down and just make bringing that awareness, at least on, from TNC's point of view, right? In terms of like management, Knowing that there was such opposition to the fencing back then and and then to where you are now with that in place and then being able to recover something super rare is so gratifying given where conservation, quote unquote, you know, strict conservation started in Molokai a while ago and where it is now is pretty pretty awesome. It is. There are still challenges for sure. (laughs) There are still 
Brada's going out there cutting fence and seniorly, you know, trying to get the pigs out of certain areas. Oh my god. So it's never ending, but never ending dramas. Yeah. What about you, Carrie? You get any cut fences over in Waikamoy <laughs> that you know of? Not lately. Oh, okay, that's good. The best thing we did was a hunt program where we invited hunters to come and go and hunt inside the preserve. It was right after your time, Melissa, probably. Okay. Is this before Pro Hunt went in? And okay, so this was to give community first chance. Yep. And then bring the professionals in to clear out the remainder. Yeah. How did that go? That seemed to satisfy them. And we don't really have any problems with people um, anymore. Knock on wood. Yeah. Is TNC doing similar to what Ane is doing? Any kind of rare plant monitoring or collection or concern for that? We allow pet much free reign of our preserves. Hank and I think Zach Pazilla now works for Pep. They plant things, they collect things. Cool. We find their target species, we report it to them, and then they go check it out. I mean, I feel like these programs have gotten so big, you know, big, quote, so to speak, you know, relative to where they were. 30 years ago and that you had just one person doing everything right and then now you have these pro programs uh you know maui forest bird and so forth you know coming in right and you know you don't have a birder on staff per se right you're just partnering with oh you do tell me so we hired sarah naone she worked with um the maui bird conservation center i wouldn't call her a birder but you know fully handled the endangered birds and oh cool so she's kind of our bird expert at this point well let's to keep our fingers crossed, the mosquitoes can start dropping, the numbers start dropping where they need to be. I guess for our listeners, Kauai is the first test site. Is that right? For no, Maui is the first test. Tell me, t- could you tell our listeners about a little bit about that project? And sorry, I get a little choked up when I talk about the birds because you know, just the idea of losing them. <laughs> so, the incompatible insect technique is a technique where you use a mosquito, or you, it could be any insect, but in our case, it's mosquitoes mosquitoes because they avian malaria and so mosquitoes have Wolbachia in their reproductive system and when you swap Wolbachia, a different strain of Wolbachia into a male mosquito then when you release that male mosquito onto the landscape he tries to mate with the wild females and the eggs are not fertile so we are hoping that this works in our landscape on East Maui so that, you know, the two birds that we're really targeting are the kiwi and the akohekohe, which mm-hmm. endangered ones, but really all of the forest birds, all of the native forest birds. So the trials happened first on Maui. Okay. You know, there hasn't been landscape scale releases yet. Mm-hmm. This was basically just to release the male mosquitoes, which don't bite their nectar feeders, and see how far they're going to move in our forest. So then, you know, we release some males and then we put out traps just to see how fast and how far they're moving. The next phase is starting where they're going to release over about 300 acres, right below bird habitat um, in Waikamoi. And then the initial phases of the Kauai releases are are starting to happen okay so maui was the was sort of tested and then Kauai is now online hopefully very soon right um the suppression project it's not you know we're not saying we're gonna get rid of all the mosquitoes we're hoping to press the the wild population right and for our listeners who may not understand um you know, about the range for, of birds, of Hawaiian honeycreepers, especially which are extremely susceptible to bird malaria. As the climate in globally has is warming, their, um, the mosquitoes have moved up in elevation. So birds, Hawaiian birds, found their refuge, so to speak, up in the tops of mountains, um, you know, up above the so-called mosquito line, that's shrinking. So this is really to, you know, to dampen those mosquito populations where the birds are living and remain. And so that's what we're hoping for. I think it's an exciting project. And I mean, we didn't have this when I was doing conservation, right? It's a tool. I mean, it's really pretty amazing what is available now for all the work that that you folk ladies are doing. Um, it's it's remarkable. I'd love to hear your sort of like 
last thoughts on conservation. Both of you are handling so much being moms and doing field work and managing crews of people, supervising folk, partnerships, you know, keeping those going. What's next for you? What do you, what are your hopes for, you know, the work that you're doing or that you, where you hope to see it go? I hope to see more support from government, actually, and more more focus from the legislature on conservation in Hawaii. I mean, the beauty of our islands is what attracts so many people here, and we need to realize that that's what we need to protect. That's yeah. what tourists want. That's where we should spend our dollars. And I'm hoping that all the years and years of education and environmental education by so many different schools and teachers and programs is starting to pay off. I feel we have so many more local people, um, mm-hmm. Hawaiian kids, local kids yeah. who are, you know, wanting a focus in conservation, knowing that the job opportunities are there and that they're viable for so long. I feel like we were all underpaid, um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and still could be underpaid. You know, anyone else who has a master's degree is usually making closer to six figures and we're barely breaking 40 grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope that, you know, it, it can correspond to other career paths. Um, but, but also just the kids, kids knowing that you can have a job where you're physically active and healthy and working to save our Hawaiian environment and to Malama Aina. Like I said earlier, you know, like I didn't know that was an option when I was younger. Um, And I'm lucky that I found it out now. So I I feel like the more local people we can get involved, Mm -hmm. the better off we'll be. And it'll help to kind of mold and shape what we care about in Hawaii. Ideally, I would love to see a society similar to, to what's happening in New Zealand, where Everyone's very conscious of what comes in and out of the islands, what co- goes in between in between the islands as well. And just being more conscious that everyone can make such a huge effort or have such a great impact in our island communities just by, you know, picking up your trash or picking up other people's trash, um, not transporting plants between islands. Um, if you're going to grow native plants, get them from your island. Even in these large scale restoration programs we're thinking about for, you know, post-fire, yeah, we need to think of, okay, we're going to get our seeds from Kahalawai, from West Maui for West Maui. We're going to get seeds for Haleakala from Haleakala, from Kamako for Kamako. You know, it's just being... Yeah conscious of of that and so we're not spreading things around that shouldn't be there and then also you know the whole invasive species just being more mindful that transporting soil from one island to another you can be transporting coconut rhinoceros beetle exactly i'm so glad you brought this up because we haven't yet to talk about this on our show it's so critical i feel like yeah it's major but so much of it is that, you know, especially in the Hawaiian community, we talk about malama aina, aloha aina. This is what we're talking about. Is yeah. You, one, you can have a career getting paid to aloha and malama aina. And two, share it with your fellow family members, with your community and being like malama aina means getting your compost from your island and not from off island. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. What about you, Carrie? What thoughts do you have? I think that a lot of our job is educations do because mm-hmm. making people people aware that certain plants and certain birds and certain insects belong here. And sometimes you have to point out the cultural connection too. And then they're like, oh, (laughs) well, you know. Uh, So, and I also just wanted to end on the note that, you know, this has been a really, really, really tough year. There's been tragic losses of birds, people, you know, emotionally and professionally that's kind of taken a toll. And I think it's taken a toll on a lot of people. But the New Year is right around the corner. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Cross our fingers that the New Year is going to get better. Yeah. Thank you for saying that and being honest, because I do feel as women, we're a little more in touch with our emotions, maybe, about how this work is really hard to be perfectly frank at times, you know, um, especially we're talking about the losses and the fires and, you know, all the rest. And yet, and yet there's resilience too, right? There is resilience. I mean, I, I mean that really like in the people that we work with, 
and in certain places that we work in and the, and the projects that we are involved in. You know, I mean, I think about the people out in Lahaina as sort of the example of that. You know, the people in Molokai is like the example of that, like hearty, hearty folks, right, who are just going to continue doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important to acknowledge the losses too, because I mean, we're human, right? I mean, and, and we're women in stewardship (laughs) and it's, it can be, it can be challenging. It can be really hard, you know, it can be emotional, all of those things. But, um, you know, it's sort of like, if you turn that side off, then I feel like it's a gift. Superpower. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's our superpower. Yeah. I, I think too, you know, speaking on the loss and when I, when people ask me what I do, when I start sharing with them and, you know, they want more details and like go into like the multiple challenges that we face or, you know, that maybe a plant's incompatible with itself. So we can't collect seeds. And then the other challenge, oh, the pig came in last week and destroyed all of our seedlings that we had growing for 10 years. And, oh, you know, there's just so many depressing aspects of what we do and people always ask well how do you keep going how do you stay so positive and I'm just like because when when you love the land it loves you back you know and when you love these little seedlings that you're planting in the ground and and you might lose 10 out of the 12 but those two made it it just gives you hope and and it's just that pure joy when the when the forest you know speaks to you and you have those special moments in time you know with your with your ancestors in this ancestral forest it's just there's there's it's just priceless and it keeps you going and it it keeps you motivated because you know if you're not doing it if you give up then it won't be here for the next generation. It won't be here for my grandkids, for my mom. Yeah, that's it. So it definitely, you know, it's like, yeah, it's depressing. It's sad. It's it's hard. You don't want to go work in the rain or thunderstorm, <laughs> but you got to do it because, you know, you just got to do it. So it's there for the next time. Agreed. Well, and it's also speaking to a real relationship, right? Is a real relationship in that it is hard. <laughs> And it is difficult and it's depressing and there are losses and then there's joy, right? And that's actually what a relationship that's real is. It's not just one thing. And I think we understand that. Yeah. I've had you on for so long. I've been very moved by what you both have said. It's been just an amazing conversation. Thank you both so much for coming on our show. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you, Carrie, for all your hard work. You're awesome. You too. Yeah. Manawahine on the line here. 